Thank you, Mr. Crockett. Good afternoon, everyone. Very good to be here with you, and at least we still are breaking 100 even during the uh, summer. We're not yet in the dog days of summer. I guess they call the dog days later on in July and August. My wife and I did have a wonderful trip back to Kansas City, and I always enjoy going there. That was the big city when I grew up, you know, and I used to go up to Kansas City. I had two or three aunts and an uncle, even an uncle there for a while, and as the musical Oklahoma proclaimed, everything's up to date in Kansas City, and it is a very beautiful city in many ways, and uh, we enjoyed being there. And as Mr. Crockett announced, we did have 358 people there for Pentecost. So that was really inspiring, a lot of folks. And uh, that is our biggest single church. They normally run about 220, but we had a group coming down from Des Moines, some from Omaha, some up from Springfield. A lot came down. Most of the little St. Joseph Church came down, and others came in, I guess, from Wichita and elsewhere. So we did have a, a very nice crowd, a very warm and loving atmosphere there. We were very grateful to be there. The work is growing, and uh, appreciated Mr. Crockett's announcements about that. Some of you know we had been down financially, but God has blessed us. We're now back above 7% increase year to date, and we're very grateful for that. Thanks to all of you and you brethren around the world for responding, and we have not yet fully counted the Pentecost offerings, but I know they're going to be more than last year. They already are, so hopefully we'll get up to at least 5 or 7% increase with them as well. And uh, Mr. Crockett has been working uh, with uh, Mr. Glenn Springfield from our Dallas church helping to put together a program to have a uh, much greater impact on the Internet. And I've asked him to kind of coordinate that effort, and we're very, very grateful that that is underway. There is no more powerful tool to reach the world as a whole than the Internet. We can reach tele people on television more powerfully, that is, those who have a television and those who are here at that time. But to reach China, India, Africa, the Middle East, you name it, nothing can reach them like the Internet. So we hope to have a far more powerful program, and I think we're getting that underway, and I'm very grateful to everyone concerned with that. So please pray about that. Uh, also... Uh, I think that's all I want to mention about, or oh, I would ask you to pray about the semi-annual letter. Tomorrow and Monday, I'll be writing the semi-annual letter. And as you know, that goes to the entire mailing list, so it will be going out to almost 300,000 people. We were over 300,000, but we're renewing right now, so we have had some taken off that we're not responding. But we're pretty close to 300,000, so please pray about that. That can have a tremendous effect. If, if that letter is properly written and if God blesses it. And, of course, that often depends upon our prayers, not just on my writing. So I'll appreciate your prayers about that. And uh, also, I uh, just heard this morning on the radio, or on, tele on radio, I guess it was, that we're just entering the hurricane season, and the first hurricane of the season is already forming out in the Caribbean. So you know what happened last year. We can pray that God will guide these things for good. Also, my wife played part of a program last night she had seen earlier from Oprah Winfrey, and I want to see the rest of it. I don't want, normally watch Oprah, but she enjoys her, and uh, Oprah does have these people he, she interviews and gets some very important things up there. This man 
was a top professor of uh, ep epidemiology, I guess uh, you could call it, of epidemics anyway, and he was a top man in that field in the United States, as consulted by the United States government. And he said he has never in his life, he must be about 55 or 60, he looks very mature, not as old as I am, but very mature, <laughs> and he's never in his life been so concerned as he is about this coming avian flu. And he said it's not a matter of whether it goes around the world, it's a matter of when, when and how badly. And he described how perhaps between 240 million and 360 million people will probably die, and they only have the capacity at this time to manufacture about 3 million uh, dosages of this vaccine, which may not even work, because the flu mutates into different strains, and they don't even know if this will work or not. So we do need to pray. We need to realize these things are happening that our God has said will happen. It's just, he says, not a matter of, of whether, but when. Also, the other day I was given, and I appreciate it from our news bureau, about Pope Benedict Sixteenth and how he is now emphasizing that he is the rock, that is, Peter is the rock, and that he has the keys of the kingdom. He didn't say I do, but he says Peter, Peter's successor, which means him, and the power to bind and loose and all that kind of thing. So he's beginning to emphasize that in an interesting way. And brethren, we're facing a different world over the next 5 to 15 years. I think a lot of you know that. We're going to have disease epidemics and hurricanes and storms and drought and famine and things like that such as has never been in the history of the earth. And Jesus shows that very clearly, very clearly. That's part of the message of Jesus Christ. We're also going to have a great, huge, false church begin to have a tremendous impact. And people are going to have to choose what to do during this next few years of our lives. I say few. Let's say 5 to 15 approximately. So we have to think about the world we're living in. In such a world, in such a world as that, a world that's changing, a world fraught with danger and problems, what should a young Christian be like? What should a young Christian be like? Do you have to be old to be a Christian? You know, a lot of younger people, I think, think that. You have to be old to be a Christian. I remember when Mr. Armstrong tried to ordain me uh, as a minister back in 1952, I, I argued. I didn't want to be. I said, I'm too young. And I was thinking of Mr. Armstrong himself, and I was thinking of Dr. Ridpath, our Methodist minister. They were both older and kind of rotund and gray-haired, and I thought, I'm not like that. <laughs> and uh, I hadn't focused on Timothy and Titus and Philemon, I guess, as much as I should have done. And luckily, I wasn't trying to push my, myself into that. I honestly was not. I was trying to push myself out of it. But not just to be a minister. What about being a Christian? Do you have to be old to be a Christian? You didn't think about so many servants of God who were very young. Jeremiah was very young when he was called. A number of the great prophets were very young when they were called. Think about the man after God's own heart. One of the most exciting personalities in the entire Bible. David the king, as he later was called. He was called as a very, very young man, apparently in his teens, to know God. Not just to know about God, but to know God, the God of Israel. Here's this young kid but had so much faith in the God of Israel, the God of creation, 
He didn't mess about. He was walking toward this giant, and this young boy, this very young man, had faith in the God of creation. And he knew that God, and he went forward in that faith. You are fighting the God of Israel. This day, the ever-living one will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head off you. And this day, I'll give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the field. Why? So I can be important and show off? No. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And brethren, young people can have that kind of a radiant faith. A radiant faith where they know and they're alive. And in the days to come, we're going to need a lot more young people like that. We need more young ministers. We need more young men and women here in the office as, as the work grows. We need more helpers in the field churches. Young men, young women turned on by God, inspired of God, to have an impact on this whole world out there. How are we going to reach the 1.1 billion people in India Hundreds of thousands of them who speak English, by the way. How are we going to reach the 1.3 billion people in China? How are we going to reach the hundreds of millions in Africa, and Central and South America, and all over Europe and Eastern Europe, which we're not reaching much yet at all? How are we going to reach them? We're going to have to have help. And we need a lot more young people who turn on and become warriors for Jesus Christ, like King David was. And have an impact on this world at the end of an age. Are not ashamed of God's church. And they're not ashamed of the Lord God of the armies of Israel. Some of you young people have grown up in the church and you begin to take it for granted. But I'll tell you as the rocks start coming through some of our windows, and they will. As the disease epidemics start hitting and people dying around us, and they will. And I have an article in my briefcase. I didn't want to be gruesome about it. But it showed how they had to bury the people back in the 1918 flu epidemic. And how a lot of the mortuaries today are preparing because they didn't, weren't able to do it. They had to bury some of them in the backyard. And they're preparing all kinds of things like that for this flu epidemic. The experts know things like that are coming. It might not, it's not that it might happen. It's going to happen, brethren. I don't say it'll be this particular flu epidemic, but this one doctor and many others think it will be. He says it's not a matter of whether, but when. We need to understand we're living in something that's very real. And yet we can stand up as the servants of the God of Israel, the servants of God of creation. And you young people and you old people the same way. We can make our life count for something. A lot of young men right now are fighting off in Iraq. My father went off as a very young man all across the sea, which was much more treacherous and much more awesome than it was today, is today. He went over in 1917 to fight in General Pershing's army in the First World War with hundreds of thousands of young men over there slaughtering one another in the trenches of World War I. Lots of men had given their lives to save our human physical country or Great Britain or Australia or whatever it happened to be. We're fighting for a much greater country. We're fighting for a much greater kingdom. We're fighting for the kingdom of God, the great government that's about to be set up on this earth, and we need to be stirred by that. And you young people need to be stirred by that opportunity, just like King David was. How did David get that kind of attitude? He was a very young man. Well, I could read through psalm after psalm, his prayers. But let me read just one you're very familiar with. Psalm chapter 8. O eternal, how our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Psalm chapter 8. You who set your glory above the heavens 
Out of the mouth of babes and infants you've ordained strength. Yes, out of very young people sometimes. Because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. David sure shut up Saul, uh, uh, not Saul, but Goliath, didn't he? <laughs> he chopped his head off. He silenced him all right. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? You've made him a little lower or a little while lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor and given him dominion over everything. And David went on. David, Brethren, David undoubtedly is a young shepherd boy out in the fields all alone, slept out there under the stars at night, looked up at those magnificent heavens again and again, and he thought, how small I am. And yet he must have been taught by his father, Jesse, and his mother, and maybe his grandparents, about the God of Israel, about the God of creation, that God made those, sun, those stars. He made the sun and the moon. He made the mountains. He made the valleys. He made everything, and he's working out of purpose. And David came to believe that and put faith in that. So David went on. He had that faith because he had meditated. I want all of you young people, not just here, I'm preaching to all of you around the world and you kids in Kansas City that I saw last week. Our biggest single group of youth is right there. David meditated. And when you read the Psalms, you know that that young man thought and thought and thought and thought again and meditated. Why am I here? What is man that you're mindful of him? What's it all about? And that gave him that depth of understanding and ultimately that depth of faith that helped him go up this 10 or 12 foot giant with absolute courage and radiant faith and say, you're not just fighting me, you're fighting the Lord God of the armies of Israel and I'll take your head off, which he did. Young people can have that kind of attitude. I didn't have that kind of attitude perfectly at all, but I do remember so many times as God was calling me and beginning to use me, even before I was ordained at age 20, going on a nationwide baptizing tour. And as I went across Arizona at night, we used to drive start out at night because we didn't have air conditioning in our car, and so we'd drive across the desert at night. We got over near Tucson or Phoenix. I think it was Tucson. I'm not going to try to be dogmatic. I could be wrong. Technically, it doesn't make any difference. We were out in the, in the desert, and it was hot, but we were tired. And so we stopped out there in the desert, and we walked up the edge of this. I think it was Mr. Burke McNair and I. might have been Raymond McNair and I. We walked up the edge of this or up this little road, we could sort of barely see it under the moonlight, and I walked up quite a bit further just so I could sort of pray to God, and I looked up at the stars, and I meditated. And I thought, Rod, you're here all alone, and you're going out with this other young man, and you're going to be tried and tested, and people are going to try to kill you and beat up on you, which they did, and we had guns pointed at us many times, and I've told you some of those stories. And I asked God to protect us and guide us. And they just had about maybe five or seven minutes of thought and meditation. But David had hours like that, undoubtedly, in his life, as many of us have done, and I did too when I was first called. Long before I was called, as I've told you, my friend Jimmy Mallett died. He had his neck broken. 
and a wrestling accident. And he and I had wrestled around and tried little jujitsu trips, tricks on, we used to call it jujitsu. Hour after hour on the Bermuda grass there in Missouri. And Jimmy got his neck broken at the very thing he and I often did more than any other activity. And it hit me like a ton of bricks as we lowered his body in the ground. And I was a pallbearer. I was thinking right there and I can remember it. And for weeks and months and years after that, I thought, why did God let Jimmy die? And I've listened to Dr. Ridpath in the Methodist Church. Is he giving any answers about what the purpose of life really is? And he wasn't. And I began to hear other preachers. And my uncle gave me some books from other preachers and commentaries. And we began to hear Mr. Armstrong, who made sense about the idea of a real God, a real God who intervenes in human affairs. But I meditated, frankly, probably hundreds of hours during those years. Why? What's it all about? What's the purpose in life? David did that. And many of you older brethren have done that. But you people, you young people, please don't be afraid to do that. Don't be afraid to sit down and think and think and think. Why am I here? What is really important? And am I willing to go all out, not just to go along with the church, no, but to prove these things? This is a very important thing. Meditation is a powerful key, a powerful key. And so we need to meditate on those things, and we need to pray, obviously, and say, God, if you're real, show me. Help me to know if you're real. I want to know. I went through that for years, asking God to make himself very real. And then prove to yourself that the Bible is really inspired of God. And recognize, if you're willing to, I'll give you four keys. Recognize that the Bible and only the Bible, only the Bible of all the religious books gives a realistic explanation of creation and how man and woman came into existence and the whole purpose of life in that way and how God created the heavens and the earth and male and female and everything else. Only the Bible does that. And, of course, the Bible itself says creation is a powerful proof of God. So Satan, the devil, has gone to work powerfully against that and tried to make young people by the hundreds of millions believe in evolution. Or as the British correctly pronounce it, evolution. <laughs> they call it evolution, which I think is a better pronunciation because it is evil. But that's, of course, what they do. And they make them doubt when they look up that there's a great designer behind this awesome design, that there's a great creator behind this creation, that there's a great lawgiver behind all these laws of nature that are absolute. They always work. Did they just get there by accident? That's stupid. You wouldn't be able to come up with that kind of reasoning in any other setting. You can't take a beautiful watch and say, well, it just somehow, you know, it was there in the sand by the sea and the waves came along and put together a nice watch and it wound itself up and got itself going. And yet the universe is probably 1,000 more times complicated than the best watch that's ever been made. You know that. And our mind, did it just happen or did a greater mind create our minds? Creation ought to prove that there is a real creator God. Another big proof of God, that he is a real God, of course, as beside the, the fact of the uh, explanation of our beginnings and of creation, is answered prayer. But, of course, Christians or non-Christians, I should say, don't have answered prayers. <laughs> they don't believe in God, so their prayers are not answered. Some of us have answered prayers, and we have had wonderful blessings. 
I don't think Dr. O'Neill will mind me mentioning, but Dr. Scott O'Neill here was showing me the other day his little daughter's tennis shoe. And, of course, we all pray for our children. And as he did his, and as he was turning in right in the enclosure where he lives in this development, he didn't think to make his daughter put on the seat belt because they were just inside this area moving the car. But she, as a little child, opened the door, fell out, and before he could realize that he'd run over his daughter and run over her foot. And he is a doctor of uh, public health. He knows about the body. He studied that, taught that. And the tire marks are still on her little shoe, which he showed me yesterday. And normally the heavy weight of this big van hitting her and crushing her would have crushed her foot. But instead, she got up like she was normal, and he took her into the house and then had her take off her shoes rather than alarm her. He started to play tootsie with her. Well, bend your toes, honey. And nothing was wrong. No swelling, no nothing. And yet he knew as he, you know, just came over, he could feel the bump, bump. The van had run over her, and the tire marks on the shoe showed that. God is our Father, and he does watch over us. And he takes care of us in a thousand different ways. And we don't always know it at the time, but we need to know it. And God does answer our prayers, and God does bless us in many, many ways. And that's another proof of God for those who know and who understand. Another powerful proof, of course, as you know, is prophecy. All these other books, the Koran, the Bhagavad Gita, the Upanishads of the Eastern religions, the Book of Mormon of the Mormon religion, all these other books, they don't have that kind of prophecy. They don't specifically describe ever what's going to happen to a major city or a major nation way in advance and have it happen. Never. None of these books do that. Only the Bible does. Only the Bible. The God of the Bible, He is God. And we need to know that and prove that and have deep faith in that. And you young people need to dwell on that. Not kid yourself, say, well, this is just dad mother's religion and that's it. No, there is a great God out there behind all of this. And another proof of God that I think is very important, and again, it doesn't prove anything to the carnal mind, but the way of God works. And let me explain, young people, some of the young people in the church, they see the faults of you and me, and we have plenty of them, and you all know that. They see our faults. And they see that we've made mistakes. When I came to Ambassador College, I found that Mr. Armstrong was not perfect. And I could tell you about some mistakes he made. I could tell you for several hours he did make mistakes. I don't mean horrible things, but just little mistakes and misjudgments and this and that and something else. And God, he was not perfect. And so I could have lost faith in God because of that. But I didn't. Uh, luckily, one thing I've had, I encourage all of you young people and you old people to develop... Learn to see the big picture. Don't get your mind on little picky things. See the big picture. Is there this great God? Is this great God's purpose working out? Are these major prophecies happening? Yes. And if God has ministers doing His work and proclaiming those properties, prophecies, are they perfect? No. Has any human being in human history ever been perfect except Jesus Christ? No. A thousand times no. So you have to really understand that. Bernard Baruch was a multimillionaire, would have been a billionaire in today's money, and he's been called the Counselor of Presidents. 
because Mr. Baruch, a very brilliant Jewish businessman and philanthropist, was counselor to seven different presidents of the United States, starting with President Wilson back during World War I and clear on through to Franklin Roosevelt and so on. And he was one of the best. I think he was, in fact, the closest personal, not political, but personal friend of Sir Winston Churchill. And Churchill's, on Churchill's last visit to the United States, he stayed in Bernard Baruch's home on Long Island, and he had personally known Churchill and Charles de Gaulle and many of these other great world leaders and tells about it in his two-volume autobiography, which I've read and read and marked <laughs> and familiar with. He said, the more I'm around the really great men, the more I realize that they are but men. He didn't say more than that. But, you know. <laughs> yes, they all have feet of clay. Nobody's perfect. So don't get your mind on the faults, you know, of Dr. Winnell or Mr. Crockett or Mr. Ames or me. Get your mind on what God is doing and on the way of life. To the degree we follow the way of life, it works. To the degree your parents follow, young people, the way of life, it works. To the degree they love each other, are faithful to each other, and to the degree they try to build a marriage the right way, it works. To the degree we teach our children the right way, it works. To the degree we live by God's laws of health, it works. To the degree we keep all of God's law, it works. In spite of that, do some of us have accidents? Yes. In spite of that, do some of us die before age 70? Do we all march right up to our 70th birthday? And we see 70 minus 10, 70 minus 9, you know, as we get toward the last day? No. God lets some die before age 70. He let Stephen, the martyr, die when he was apparently just 25 or 30-year-old young man. Why? I don't know. He let the original Apostle James get his head chopped off again as a very young man, probably only age 40. Why? I don't know. It shook the church. It helped humble them. But there were other reasons. James didn't do something awful. There's no indication. Stephen certainly didn't. But God allows things from time to time. Don't let that get your mind off the big picture. Overall, God's way of life works. And these people like James... And these people like Stephen, and these people like Mr. Carl Manair, and these people like Mr. Uh, John O'Gwen and others will undoubtedly be greeting us and hugging us in a few years in the resurrection. They will be there. You and I are not there yet. So we have to carry on. But in this life, the vast majority of us are protected and blessed, and even they were blessed in so many ways in their families and their service to God, because the way of life that God gives us works. It's real. That's another proof of the great God. So learn to prove that God. Learn to meditate on the reality of God. Learn to pray to that God. Learn, of course, to cry out to that God again and again. Daniel was a young man when he was called of God. Let's turn back to Daniel chapter 1, if you would. Daniel, the book of Daniel, the great prophecy of Daniel, chapter 1 and verse 3. He's talking here about this king, this great king, Nebuchadnezzar, and how he was the king of the greatest empire on earth at that time. 
And then verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3, instructed Ashpen as the master of his eunuchs to bring some of the children, young people. What about young people being Christians? What about young people being servants of God, of Israel, and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles? Young men, not old men, not middle-aged men, very, very young men, the indication is, to whom there was no blemish. But good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, quick to understand, who had the ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. He sent probably the Jews were very brilliant people. He thought, I'll get some of these outstanding young guys and get them here in my service. He was smart. He learned to delegate. And so he did. And it tells about these young men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and so forth. And then over in chapter 2, Daniel 2, verse 12, then a great problem had arisen, and he had a dream no one could interpret. He became very angry when the wise men of Babylon couldn't, wouldn't tell him. He thought they wouldn't. And he commanded to destroy all the wise men, which would have included Daniel and his companions. So the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men, and they sought Daniel to kill him and his friends. And then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, captain of the guard, and he says, why is this decree so urgent? So verse 16, notice, here's this young man. Verse 16, Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their later names and their original names are given here. That they might seek mercies. You see, they prayed to God. They cried out to God that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret so that Daniel and his companions might not perish. And the secret was revealed in a night vision. So Daniel blessed, again, no doubt in heartfelt prayer, blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered, blessed be the name of the God forever and ever for wisdom and might are his. He changes the times and seasons. He removes and raises up kings. He reveals the disease secret things. I thank you and praise you, verse 23, O God of my fathers. Some of you have fathers and mothers in God's church. Thank the God of your fathers sometimes. That God is the real God if they're in God's church and believe the truth of the Bible. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You've given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we ask of you, what we prayed to you. To pray means to ask. For you have made known to us the king's demands. And so their life was spared because of their crying out to God. Notice a little later in Daniel, chapter 6. Again, a very famous passage, but we do need to think about it. And I hope all you young people will think about it very, very much. I had to think about it when I was a very young person. I'll just say this. I began to practice this a lot of the time. Not perfectly, but way back when it was in my early 20s. And maybe that's one reason God has used me to a limited degree, certainly very limited. But I learned this lesson. Here, uh, they found that Daniel, or the king Darius at this time, Daniel 6, verse 9, had signed a decree that they were not to pray to any other god except Darius. And when Daniel knew, verse 10, the writing was signed, he went home and went into his upper room. And with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he enjoyed praying, looking out the window where he could look up and see the heavens and the things God had created and made. He knelt down on his knees three times that day. 
So here was Daniel in a time of threat of death, kneeling down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. His custom since when? Since he was a very young man. A very young man since early days. Daniel had got down on his knees three times a day. Young people can do that. You don't have to be old to do those things. If you want to be a warrior of Jesus Christ, if you want to have God's blessing now and forever, you can live this way of life and you can seek the God of heaven and he will answer you and he will bless you. Turn now to first or to second Timothy, if you would, in your New Testament, second Timothy. And I'm going to begin reading uh, here. At this point in Second Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and uh, let's start in verse 1. He says, but know that in the last days perilous times shall come. Well, sometimes I tell you folks and you young people that perilous times are coming. He was telling this young man there are going to be terrible things happening, ter- perilous times Men will be lovers of themselves. That's the whole problem with people today. They're in the me generation. Me, my, what do I want? What do I feel? And they don't put God first. Lovers of themselves. Lovers of money. Always thinking about money and physical things. Boasters, proud, blasphemers. Disobedient to parents. They're not truly obedient and thankful of their parents. Unthankful, unholy, and so on. He says a little bit later here, brethren... And I want to pick up the story flow and not read all of this. He said in verse 14, But as for you, continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, he told Timothy, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture, not some of it, all of it, And the only written scripture they had at this time, as far as we know, they might have had Luke by this time, one indication is. Might have had one or other gospel, but basically the main overwhelming amount of scripture they had was the Old Testament. The Old Testament, as we call it. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, literally meaning God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do you need the Book of Mormon beside the Bible? No. Do you need Mary Baker Eddy's Science and Key to the Scriptures? No. Do you need some other book by men? No, you don't. Some of our booklets can help you. Mr. Armstrong's autobiography is a very inspirational autobiography, but you don't have to have it. What you do have to have is the Bible. That's the only one directly inspired of God. I know one man with his own work, and it is his work, not God's work, but he makes people read the Mystery of the Ages by Mr. Armstrong as though it's some kind of a New Testament. Well, it's not a New Testament, and Mr. Armstrong never claimed that it was perfect, and it's not. It's helpful. Again, very fine sermon in print. has three or four little errors, nothing massive, but it's, it's not perfect. It's not God's Word. You do need the Bible, that the man of God may be complete. You don't need anything else. The Bible is God-breathed. 
So you obviously need to really study the Bible, meditate, think, and think as you read the Bible and go through it carefully to have then the mind of God and learn about the way God's mind works and to understand God's plan, the plan of the Creator who inspired these verses. So remember that as you try to draw close to the God of creation. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we want to go to one part of the Bible that does have special meaning to young people, or certainly ought to, and it's written more for them, I think, than for older people, though it applies to everybody, but the problems are more young people's problems, as you understand. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 now, and I'm going to begin reading here uh, in verse 15. 1 Corinthians six fifteen. Paul wrote the Corinthians, Do you not know that your bodies are the members of Christ? Our bodies belong to Jesus Christ. They do not belong to us. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot, some cheap woman or cheap man, or be in either way? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? In the sexual union, you do become one flesh beyond any other type of union. You may not become one flesh as fully as in marriage where you share the same house and the same, some maybe even the same toothbrush when you're traveling together and one forgets, you know, you share all kinds of things when you're married in a deep and profound way. And yet there is normally a certain emotional commitment made by people in this union. It's a type of Christ in the church. It ought not be dragged down through the sewer pipe. Because when you drag anything through the sewer pipe, it stinks. And sex stinks when it is misused, used for a cheap purpose. For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit. We're to be one with God. Our bodies belong to him. Flee sexual immorality. He didn't say, just make it, you know, well, if your girlfriend invites you into her apartment, go ahead and come into her apartment. Or your girls, your boyfriend invites you into his apartment, just go in there. No, don't do that. Don't do that. I know that a lot of you kids around the world do that kind of thing. I'm well acquainted with that. Don't do that. That is not good. It's not right. In my generation, it was unheard of. You say, well, you lived in the Middle Ages. No, I didn't. <laughs> we had airplanes and, and uh, you know, obviously millions of automobiles and movies and all kinds of things and television was coming in, but we did not do that. You didn't go into some girl's apartment all alone or you didn't go in their house all alone. Her parents were gone or this kind of thing. And she was a nice girl. People used to know better. But today they have all these television shows and all these movies showing young people going here and there and traveling and in and out of hotel rooms. And they portray that as so normal that you young people seeing that, you think that's the way everyone does. Well, they don't, but it is true. An increasing number do do that, but that doesn't make it right. We're commanded to come out of this world. This is called Babylon. Come out of her, that you do not become partaker of sins, her sins and receive of her plagues. God says, flee fornication. If you're going to flee sexual immorality, sex before marriage is the thing to do. Get sort of in a situation where it could very easily happen. No one is there and you're with a pretty girl and you're all alone. No, that's not the way to flee fornication. You know that. If you're going to quit smoking, 
Well, obviously, the thing to do is to have a cigarette or a pack handy just in case. No, don't have anything handy just in case. Throw all your cigarettes away, all your lighters and matches, and as best you can, stay away from people who do smoke so you don't are tempted. Get away as best you can. You may not be able to totally flee that situation, but as best you can, stay away from it. You see the picture. Do what God says, and you'll be better off. Flee fornication. Learn to be clean. Learn to appreciate the fact that sex is special. Sex is for marriage. Sex is something God commands between a man and a wife to bind them together and to cause a marriage to help work and so on. And anything outside of that is sin and brings the death penalty. I said it, yes, the death penalty. Are we going to stone you? No. But God will put all of us in the lake of fire if we go ahead and do those things and never really, really repent. Because the wages of sin is death. That's what it is. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man does is outside his body. But he who commits sexual immorality, but the uh, Greek word is literally fornication, meaning sex between two unmarried people primarily, although it can include gross sex, just a continuation of uh, immoral behavior, or it can include homosexuality, perversion, Anyone who does those things sins against his own body. You begin to pervert your body the way your body works, the way your emotions work. A young woman who lets Jack Jack and John and Jim and everybody else paw all over her and kiss her and caress her, she's cheapening herself. She's never going to have this special feeling toward one man, her husband. And a young man who messes around with five or ten or twenty-five young women, is he going to have that special feeling that this is my sweetheart, this is my bride This is something special, very, very special and unique between us as man and wife. He can't have that feeling. He can't have it, brethren. So we do need to understand the way of God works. You'll have a deeper marriage, a happier marriage, if it is that way. I had an experience recently that helped me to realize, although I've certainly had plenty of evil thoughts and got close to the edge of the cliff in the past and all that kind of thing, but I have met every now and then, as I did recently, a young man whom I may have met, but I don't remember meeting. And I could talk to Mr. and Mrs. Aparting about it later. They would know who I met. Most of the rest of you wouldn't. But he was the son of a young woman that I had loved as a friend. I don't mean loved romantically, but liked and loved and dated a whole lot when I was in Ambassador College. And she is now dead, and he is her son. And he came with us into our church and I was able to go up and talk to him. And even as I was talking, it came back to me. I'm sure glad that I didn't mess around with Joanne. I'm glad I did not try to commit fornication with her and paw all over her and neck and slobber and seduce her and all this kind of stuff. I just felt good about that. And I know a lot of ministers whose wives I have dated in the past And those wives know that during the time I was there with them, I didn't do anything bad in that way. And I'm glad. I was trying to be strict in that particular way. Lots of other sins, too strict in some ways, maybe a tight personality, too intense, whatever. But at least I tried to keep from that one thing. It makes me feel good. It works. You can have a clean conscience later on when you meet this young husband and his wife because you never messed around with her. You have nothing to be ashamed of in that way. Flee fornication. Try to honor God in that part of your life. Because do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? 
Your body is the dwelling place of God's Holy Spirit. It should live in you and dwell in you, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. I do not belong to myself. My body belongs to Jesus Christ. How dare I take my body and go off with some cheap woman or try to seduce even some decent woman, but misuse her and me in that way. For you are bought with, or were bought with a price. See, Christ died and paid for you. Therefore, glorify God in your body. It's talking about the whole of your body, obviously, not just in regard to sex, but that's the direct context, at least. Stay away from sexual immorality. You never have to be afraid of getting AIDS, do you? In that way, as long as you stay away from that kind of thing and are not careless in the kind of blood transfusions or anything else like that. You don't have to be afraid of getting these other home or these other uh, sex diseases, gonorrhea and syphilis and so on. Some I've known have had people born as deaf or blind or this or that. Why? I told you about my friend back in Joplin. Father's a very famous, well-known, successful lawyer there. Called him Hoppy. Hoppy because he had to walk like this and used to take him on my arm to help him get around. Hoppy. Brilliant young man. Born totally blind. Why? Because his father messed around and passed on to him. Uh, well, he himself never had gonorrhea, but his father apparently had it, and he was born blind. Others are born deaf because the parents had free sex. Free? Wasn't free to Huffy. He could never see anything. Wasn't very free for him. These things have penalties. There's a law of God, and you break that law, and that law breaks you, young people, more than you realize. And later on in your marriage, if you've messed around and shared your body with other young people, it's going to be so easy to slip again. So easy to slip again. Don't do it. God's way works. And a Christian young man or woman will have the fear of God in the right way. Not as of a monster, but that all. My great God, the creator of the sun, moon, and stars, he's my father. He's watching. The eyes of the eternal are every place, beholding the evil and the good. And he wants me to live right, and he wants me to live clean, and he wants me to live pure. And we want to have that attitude all the time about everything. For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Don't use your body cheaply. And in your spirit, your attitude, your mind, which are God's. Obviously, you should glorify God in your body in the sense of getting enough exercise and getting good food and getting enough sleep, all those things. But it's in the context of fornication here that he's emphasizing that. So this is a special problem with young people. Two of the big problems young people get into, two of the biggest are misuse of sex because their sex drive is at a peak at that point in their lives. And also... A drug addiction, misuse of liquor or misuse of marijuana or later the stronger stuff, heroin and uh, all the other drugs. Those are two big things in our society. You all know that. Stay clear back from the edge of the cliff. You don't glorify God by getting right up to the edge of the cliff. Flee drug addiction. Free alcohol, flee alcoholism. Flee fornication. Stay away from it. Don't mess with it at all. And then God will give you a better life, a better marriage, a better body, a better blessing now and forever. So these are very real things. 
Now turn, if you would, to 1 Timothy. Let's go back at this point to 1 Timothy, brethren, in your New Testament. And I want to read here then uh, something that we need to hear, read and to understand. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and beginning in verse, uh, uh, let's say at this point I want to read in 1 well, I say one. I don't really want that. But uh, oh, I'm sorry. It's First Timothy four is the one that I want. Yeah, First Timothy four, and I kind of wrote down the wrong one here. He says to Timothy in verse seven, reject profane and old wives' fables, and exercise yourself rather to godliness. Sometimes young people, uh, older people, old wives or old men will come up with odd things. And it's kind of a warning to young people. Here, Timothy was a young evangelist. And Paul is warning him. For godly exercise profits a little or for a little while, by the way, is perhaps the best translation. Frankly, bodily exercise profits a great deal, but only for a little while. It'll, it'll last you and help you for a day or two, but then you better do it again, and it's better to glorify God in your body all the time. Because especially in our age, you know, our fathers and our mothers used to have to work physically and do work in the fields and work in the factories and exercise. And today, we sit in front of the television or eat breakfast, and then we get in our car get and sit and get out of our car and come and sit at our desk, and then we go home and sit at a meal and then sit at the television, and we don't get exercise. In the old days, they had to exercise a lot more as part of their lives. So exercise is very important in the right way. But godliness is profitable for all things. It's much more important, and you need to recognize that. Some girls are too concerned with their figure, and they're always dieting or exercising just to show off. Some young men, I see them at the Y. <laughs> I go to the Y and uh, to exercise, and they're very concerned with their body. I'm not in that way. I used to be. I used to have that. I've told you about that problem. Not that I was perfect in that. I used to stand in front of the mirror, you know, and go like this. And didn't do very much good because they didn't have a great big body anyway. <laughs> but, you know, you get involved in that. I see some of the young men there showing off and all this and that kind of thing. So don't get involved in that as much as you do in searching for God. It's profitable for the life that is now and that which is to come. Godliness is forever. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, for to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God. Our God is the living God. He's intervened powerfully in world affairs, who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. These things command and teach. Let no one despise your youth. Even here, Timothy was a young man, and yet God used him powerfully. Don't despise, let them despise your youth, but be an example. You young people, try to be an example. Try to think, what would Jesus Christ be like if he were in the flesh? Be an example to the believers in word. How do you speak? Do you use crass speech? Do you use dirty speech occasionally, getting in dirty words or cuss words or semi-cuss words and talk kind of tough and cheap and vulgar? Don't do that. Do you put people down constantly with your mouth and evaluate, oh, so and so and so forth? No, don't do that either. Watch your mouth and conduct in the way you live. 
Do you try to go out and drink too much and wild living and so on? Watch your conduct and love. Do you love others and honestly want to try to help them as a fellow human being in spirit and your attitude in faith? Do you believe in the God of Israel, the Lord God of the armies of Israel and want to honor him in purity? I don't need to be pure. Only old ladies need to be pure. Yes, you do need to be pure, even you young people. And you'll be so much happier if you are. You could take wonderful trips around the world. You could have a glass of Cabernet Sauvignon or two of the meal, but you don't have to get drunk. You can enjoy the opposite sex and have a, eventually a husband or wife to hold in your arms, but you don't have to mess around beforehand. You don't need to do that. And you'll enjoy the sex relation a lot more if you do it the right way than if you do it the wrong way. You'll live to see that. People that mess around don't have the deep, profound happiness as to those who do it the right way. So learn to be pure in the right way. Till I come, give attendance to reading. Young people need to learn to really poke their nose in the Bible. And you young people around the world, please learn to do that. You may not read all my articles. I hope you will, but that's not as important as reading this book. I'll just say my articles and Dr. Winnell's articles. And Mr. Ames' articles and the others of us that write. We are, they're helpful sermons in print, but the most important thing to read is this book right here. Read it and read it and read it and think about it. Pray about it. Meditate on it. So think about that. Give attention to reading, to exhortation. You're getting exhortation now. God says pay attention to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. The ministers, the elders that laid hands on Timothy and apparently one of them kind of gave a prophecy. This young man will be used. He said, well, always remember that. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Young man, all of us who are young ought to think of these words and try to live that way of life, to give, to help, to serve, and to be an example of Jesus Christ in every way like that. That is indeed very, very important. Turn back, if you would, now to the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs was written to Solomon's sons, but certainly it includes women. The same principle applies all to all of us, male and female alike. And it's, of course, a tremendously I mean, tremendously important book. It really is. And I, I myself found the last several years, as I realized the responsibility on me, I thought, I've got to read this book more because I need God's wisdom a lot more leading this work. Without it, I can't do the things I ought to do. And so I've had to read the book of Proverbs a lot more the last four to six years than I used to do. The Proverbs of Solomon, verse 1, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding. You see, it helps you understand what things are all about. To receive instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, equity, to give prudence to the simple, to the young man, you see, the young person, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain counsel, to understand a proverb, an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the eternal is the beginning of wisdom. If you have that awe 
that absolute profound awe that there is a real God sitting at the right hand, sitting at controls with Christ at his right hand in heaven. He's the God of creation, and Christ is the Lord God of the armies of Israel who has and will now intervene in human affairs. And you believe that God, and your mind's on that God. You have awe of that God. That's the beginning of wisdom. And you think of everything else. You think of sex. You think of dating, you think of marriage, you think of liquor, you think of how you use your automobile, you think of how you use your time, you think about how you use your job, you think about how you interact with others, you think of everything through that prism and that relationship with God, the awe of the great God of creation because God has made us male and female, God ordained marriage, God ordained sex. God made us to be his servants. God made us to work and to have and accomplish in our job. And we want to honor God, honor God in our job. All the other things, they tie in with God. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Oh, I don't care. I don't need to listen to this stuff. Fools say, don't be a fool. My son, hear the instruction of your father. God commands you that. And do not forsake the law of your mother. For there will be graceful ornaments on your head and chains about your neck. Turn to chapter 2. I could read the whole book, of course. I just want to read a few special points that might apply to young people in this relationship, in this sermon. My son or daughter, if you receive my words and treasure my commands, if you appreciate what I've taught you so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment, Say, oh, God, help me really understand. Yes, if you cry out and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the eternal and find the knowledge of God. For God gives wisdom. Pray to God for wisdom. Please, Father, give me wisdom. Help me to come to make the right decision. Ask God that over and over every day. The eternal gives wisdom from his mouth, come a knowledge and understanding, and so on. So you want to learn to do that and keep on doing that all the days of your life. Turn to chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. Trust in the eternal with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. So many people, well, here's the way I look at it. Lean not to your own understanding. And all your ways acknowledge Him. Say, my body belongs to God. My mind belongs to God. My talents belong to God. My time. How do you use your time? You just watch stupid stuff on television. The great mental wasteland. All kinds of empty stuff out there. Is that the way you use your time? The time just goes by? My father told me a number of times how he had to learn to kill time over in Europe because they weren't always fighting and then the trenches are back behind. Of course, they, you know, he wasn't converted. They had to learn to kill time. So they'd play cards and play pinochle and play this and this, learn to kill time. But we have a purpose. We don't need to kill time. I always have a Bible with me virtually every place I go. Unless I'm just on a hike for a few hours. But if I go to the mountains for a day or two or a night or two, I always take my Bible with me. I try to take a magazine or some booklets or something else with me where I can learn, I can grow, I can improve. I can be a better servant of you and a servant of God because I try to use my time. I don't want to waste my time. Think about that. 
and all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the eternal and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Honor the ever-living one with your possessions, with the first fruits of all your increase. Give tithes and offerings generously to God. Don't think in your mind, brethren, please, for your sake, not my sake. God can call a whole bunch of millionaires if he has to. Don't think, how little can I get, give and get by? Think, how much can I give and get by? How can I be a better servant in tithes and offerings? How can I be a better servant in helping others? How can I be a better servant in every phase of your life? So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not despise the chastening of the eternal, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. We find that repeated, of course, back in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 12. Don't despise God's correction. Again, I'm sure many times I did do that, but sometimes I didn't. When I would get corrected powerfully in the work, sometimes I realized, well, technically, the one who corrected me might have been correcting me too much or maybe didn't have the facts straight. But I realized that maybe God wanted me to be humbled and I tried to learn from it most of the time or I wouldn't be here. I'll just say that. Try to think, you know, that maybe God is allowing this for a purpose and learn from it. Learn from it. Don't always assume that the one doing the correcting is wrong, by the way. Sometimes Mr. Armstrong corrected me or others, and I, quote, knew, end quote, that he was wrong in the way he did it or what he did it about. And later on, I came to realize, no, I was wrong and he was right. (laughs) But it might have taken me three or four years to figure that out. And then I learned, no, there was a reason behind it, and it was good for me, and so on. Sometimes he may have done it. I might realize 20 years later, well, technically he was wrong, but God probably wanted me to learn a lesson. Try to learn the lesson. God will work with you and work with you and work with you. You older brethren all know that. You had to go through, as we say, hell and high water to be here, some of you. Worldwide was all torn apart. And then they had over here was Flurry claiming he was Mr. Armstrong's follower. And then you had Ted over there. And Mr. Armstrong said, don't go with him. And then others rose up. And then you heard Rod Meredith is too strict or he's bad or he's this or he's that. And you had to figure out what to do. You went through this for a while. But you tried to understand. And you tried to ask God for guidance. And you're here. And hopefully you begin to realize that although we're not perfect, we're carrying on the work more as Mr. Armstrong did the one God used so much more directly than any other group on earth. And you can understand that. But you had to go through these trials and tests and ups and downs. And what will we do? What will we do to finally get here? So God tests us in so many ways. Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. In the end, you see, you'll be so much happier if you learn those things. And that is what God wants. Turn to pay to uh uh, uh, verse, uh, let's see, it's uh, trying to hurry ahead here, but uh, turn to verse 21. Uh, My son, let them not depart from your eyes, that is God's ways. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, so they will be a life to your soul and grace to your neck. Then you will walk safely in your way, and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. Yes, you will lie down, and your sweet sleep will be sweet. 
Do not be afraid of sudden terror nor of trouble when the, for the wicked when it comes. For the eternal will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Brethren, as these plagues sweep over the Western world and some people around us are dying, and if the bodies pile up that you read in these articles happened back in 1918, some of us may die and God may let some of the first three plagues affect us and yet save us from the later ones like he did to ancient Israel. But in your heart and mind, you will know if you're serving God that you are serving God and you will know that he is with you and he's your father and you don't need to worry and you don't need to toss and turn. I know some of my fellows tossed and turned back in senior year of high school and junior college and they thought about fighting Harry Truman's war and they'd cuss about so-and-so's war over in Korea and what's going to happen to us and are we going to get shot up. I was hearing Mr. Armstrong and it didn't frighten me. I was glad to know that there is a God and God is working out a purpose here below. He's a real God. He is your father. Just like he took care of Dr. Scott Winnell's little girl. As he takes care of so many things like that, he will take care of you. And you don't have to be afraid. And you don't have to be all tormented inside. You can have the peace of God that passes all understanding if you walk with God. And when the terror comes by night and the terrible plague by day, you will know that you are God's servants. You'll know you're not perfect, but if you're trying hard, you will know God knows that. And he will watch out for you in such a time. Let's go on now to chapter 5, if you would. Proverbs 5. And I want to read here beginning in verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern. Again, you older folks, I'm preaching to young people, okay? Running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad? Streams of water in the streets? What's he talking about? He goes on to explain. Let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with who? Every pretty girl you meet in a nightclub across the crowded room? No. Rejoice with the wife of your youth. A young woman that is precious to you, that you love, that you cherish, that you have bound yourself to love, to cherish, to support until death do you part. And you have made a covenant before God to become one flesh. As a loving deer in a graceful role, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured, or as the margin is, intoxicated. Be drunk with her love. Think she's beautiful. She's darling. You're glad to have a beautiful wife. And you're deeply, profoundly appreciate her. You're loving to her. You're kind to her. You're merciful to her. And hopefully she to you. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman? and be embraced in the arms of a seductress. For the ways of man are before the eyes of the eternal, and he ponders all his paths. God's aware of what's going on out on lover's lane, here and there, in the back seats of cars. They don't even have to have lover's lanes anymore. I know like they did when I was growing up, they just go to each other's place. Or they just shack up together, as we used to call it, live together. But he's using this phraseology here to help us understand And we do need to understand. So sex is a wonderful thing if it's used in marriage in a right way and that kind of love and concern and, 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 you know, the right kind of even infatuation and intoxication. 
being intoxicated with your wife's love <laughs> is a beautiful thing to see in a young couple if they give themselves to each other and bind themselves as husband and wife and so on, which God wants. And God is very pleased with that. Going on now, if you would, to uh, chapter, if I can read my own writing here. Uh, I'll have to see if I can read my writing. <laughs> uh, chapter 10. Chapter 10, the Proverbs of Solomon, a wise son makes a glad father, and a foolish son is the grief of his mother. I know it's so wonderful if you have a wise son, a son that is thoughtful, a son that makes wise decisions and doesn't do stupid stuff. And a terrible example can be a grief where his mother just nodded up with concern. Treasures of wickedness profit nothing, but righteousness delivers from death. The eternal will not allow the righteous soul to famish. What's going to happen when the drought hits and the famine disease epidemics? This tells you God will not allow you to starve if you really are serving him. He will not allow it. But he casts away the desire of the wicked. He who deals with a slack hand becomes poor. Some people stand around and goof around and they won't get a job. And when they do get a job, they won't work hard God wants us to get a job, and God says, Six days shall you labor and do all your work. That's a command. And the seventh day is the Sabbath of the eternal your God. You rest that day. Don't deal with the slack hand, but the hand of the diligent, one who works hard, who accomplishes, who drives himself, makes one rich. He who gathers in summer is a wise son. As we say in our modern lingo, make hay while the sun shines. You know, there are times when a farmer has to work extra long hours and harvest, and other times he can sleep in a little bit more in the winter and the snow is on the ground, and he can clean his tools and clean up his barn. But when you have a special opportunity, work hard. He'll never regret that. I remember again on the baptizing tours where, you know, we would lose sleep virtually every single night except the Sabbath. And I'm not exaggerating. Five and a half or six hours sleep is all we got, night after night after night. You said, Mr. Armstrong, he was mean. He made you do that. No, he did not make us do that. He practically yelled at us and said, be sure you take care of yourself. But we were zealous and maybe unwise. But we knew we had to meet all these people. So we kept going and we would take turns and have a big pillow. And one of us would sleep in the back of the car. So we did sleep, but not in a bed. <laughs> so we would sleep in the back of the car part of the time and just keep going and keep going to visit more people. While I was out baptizing people all day long and working 16 or 18 hours a day, the summer I turned 21, and again the summer I turned 22, and half the summer, the summer I turned 23, my friend Jimmy Porter and Jack Fernor and Jack Montaldo and Ducky McPherson and Carter McKee and all the other guys, they were back home dating girls and probably lying there on the concrete by uh, the uh, big swimming pool uh, south of town and having a good time. What was I doing? Losing sleep, losing meals. How terrible, you say. No, I look back on those days with profound thankfulness. I have never shed one tear or had one ten-minute period when I thought, oh my, I missed out. I did not miss out. I'm so grateful I had that opportunity to help that people, those people, and had grown men and women old enough sometimes to be my grandparents break down and cry when we would leave them knowing we had no church east of the Mississippi 
All we had was Portland, Eugene, and Pasadena on the West Coast. And they knew they may never see anyone again representing Mr. Armstrong. And they were hearing this father figure night after night, seven nights a week on the radio. And it meant so much. And so I was glad. You don't miss out in serving God. Don't think you will, you young people. Be a warrior for Jesus Christ. Give your life to Jesus Christ. A number you have that thought in mind and get going on it. And try to get involved with this leadership training program Dr. Bonnell is developing. Get involved with you young men with the ministerial training program later on. We need more men and women to serve the great God. You'll never be sorry you did. So he who deals with a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent is one who gets blessed. And do your best. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked, and so on. He says over in uh, uh, verse uh, uh, 19, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. If you just talk and talk and talk, I'm not talking about me. <laughs> I'm preaching out of the Word. But when you just blat, blat out your own ideas, you may say things you wish you wouldn't say. But he who restrains his lips is wise. Be careful what you say. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. You see, it helps people. The heart of the wicked is worth little. The lips of the righteous feed many. And that's what we need to be doing through this work. Feed many. But fools lie, die for lack of wisdom. They don't get it. They don't understand. They're not reading these words. And they don't understand the purpose of human existence. Turn over to chapter 11 now. Chapter 11 and beginning in verse 14. Where there is no counsel, the people fall. So where there is no counsel, God wants us to get multitude of counsel, to get different bits of advice from different people, wise people, not just other people who already believe what you do, but multitude of counsel. And in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. That's another great lesson for young people. Learn that lesson as we go along. Turn now to Matthew 6, brethren. Matthew chapter 6 at this point, if you would. And notice, beginning here in verse 19, Matthew chapter 6, and beginning in verse 19. And uh, again, a very, very important uh, uh, passage here. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. A lot of young people just want more money or they want a better job and their mind's on that. That's the main thing. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Give your money, your time, your effort, your prayers, your thoughts in God's service. To worship God, to wrap yourselves around that one great goal. And here he describes the goal at the end. He says, don't worry about what you shall eat or drink or what you shall wear. Verse 31, for after these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows. He knows you need a wife or a husband. He knows you need food. He knows you need clothes, a place to stay. He knows all that. But seek first the kingdom of God. Put that way ahead of everything else, young people, and you will never be sorry. Never be sorry. Seek first the kingdom of God, this coming government of God, and the opportunity to be born in the very family of God and bear God's name forever. Think about that. 
Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added. He didn't say you'll be a millionaire, but He said you'll have enough to eat and enough to wear, and, you know, He'll take care of you. Therefore, do not worry. Don't have your mind all the time on the things about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own evil. You have enough trials today. Don't worry, well, what's going to happen next year and the next year and this and that? No. Do your part. Work hard. Give your life to God. And God will then will give eternal life to you. That's the thing. That's what a young person should do. That's what a young Christian is like. Like King David who went all out that all the world may know that there is a God in Israel. That's what the... Timothy did, the young evangelist who gave himself to God. And Paul said, I have no one who will take care of you like Timothy. That's no doubt like Jeremiah did. That's no doubt like Daniel did, who cried out to God and was made the virtual governor over the greatest Gentile kingdom in the history of the world and served God and prayed to God on his knees three times a day. This is the way a young person can be, if he will. And then God will bless you. With a mate, if you do your part, he will bless you with a good job, with food, with clothing. He will take care of you. And in the time of trials and tests and terror by night and plagues by day, your God, the God of Israel, will fight your battles. And he will be your God and he will be your rock and your redeemer and your protector. And he will be your father if you give yourself to him as his children.